Heavenly Father, as now we study more about the Holy Spirit, particularly focusing on knowing God the Holy Spirit, we remember that your word says that this, uh, this age of the new covenant, this is a new covenant of the Spirit, not of the letter, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You poured out the Holy Spirit in accord with your promise in this new covenant age. You poured out your Spirit on the church. It's the baptism with the Holy Spirit that constitutes the church. The church's life is a life in the Spirit. Our worship is a worship in Spirit and in truth. We walk by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. And so, Father, teach us and correct us because there is so much misunderstanding and so much false teaching out about the person of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what it means to walk in the Holy Spirit. Now open our minds, help us listen eagerly and attentively and humbly that your word might direct us, encourage us, instruct us, and as needed, correct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Many of you will know the name John Owen, some of you won't, but John Owen was a a great Puritan theologian and scholar. To give you a time frame, John Owen was around when the King James Bible was that new translation. He he ministered in the 1600s, and in 1657 he wrote a book titled, Of Communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, speaking particularly about communing with each of the persons of the Blessed Trinity. He explored what it means to relate to the Holy Spirit as God, as Christians do. So in this sermon, I can only just touch on that subject. This could easily be a series of very profitable uh, sermons, but I mean to go over a lot. And we are going to collide with a lot of false teaching that, that is so prevalent that I'd be very surprised if you haven't heard it. I'd be very surprised if some aren't even holding to it without knowing it. So this could be a very helpful time we spend in Scripture today. So as we approach this, remember what we've learned about the Holy Spirit, that He is God that everything it means to be God is true of the Holy Spirit. Is God righteous? The Holy Spirit is righteous. Is God omnipotent? Is He omniscient? Is He holy? The Holy Spirit is all those things as well as God. And He's a distinct person. He's a person subsisting in the one essence of God. He is a subject of the nature of God. He acts through the nature and the will of God uh, as a person, as a distinct person, distinct from the, the Father from whom he is breathed forth, the Father and the Son from whom he proceeds. Uh, And this is the Holy Spirit who created the Bible by inspiring the holy men who wrote the pages of Scripture. The Bible is a book written by the Holy Spirit. And as we saw, the focus and center of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw, it's the Holy Spirit's great delight to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to point to Him, to hold Him out in all of His wonder and and majesty and and in the uh, greatness of His work. For it is even in the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus offered Himself as a sacrifice for us without blemish to cleanse our minds from dead works to serve the living God, as Hebrews chapter 9 tells us. So with all that in mind then, let's dive in and learn more about knowing God the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral 1, we want to study about the Spirit and the body of Christ. The Spirit and the body of Christ. And it shouldn't be surprising at all, given what we've learned of Him, that He is the one who brings us into relationship with Christ. He is the one who brings us into union with Christ. It is Him 
it, it is he who acts almost, you could say, as the matchmaker between Christ and his bride, bringing us to him and uniting us with him. So letter A, he is the mode of baptism into it. And when I say it, I mean the body of Christ. He's the mode of baptism into the body of Christ. And a very clear verse that teaches this beyond all reasonable doubt is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, For also by one spirit, or I'd say better in one spirit, so I'll say for also in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So the baptism with the Holy Spirit is how one is joined to the body of Christ, how one is incorporated into the body of Christ. Can you be a Christian without being in the body of Christ? No, you cannot. And how do we get into the body of Christ? It's by baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, John the Baptist produced the picture of this. As I'll just, A lot of these I'll read from you just because we've got a lot to look at, and so I want to move us along at a certain pace so we can slow down periodically. So Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, uh, Mark introduces us right away to the ministry of, of John the Baptist. And in Mark 1, verses 7 and 8, we read, And John was preaching, saying, After me is coming one who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. Now listen, I baptize you with water, and there's a little touch in the Greek text that emphasizes the word I. I, for my part, I distinctively, I baptize you with water. But he, and again, that is also emphasized, but he for his part, he himself, he is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he makes a division between their two ministries, but a, a connection between their two ministries. His baptism is a picture. Water doesn't do anything for anybody except rinse, rinse dirt off of you and drown you if you stay down too long. So it's a picture, but the Lord Jesus would bring in the reality. Bapt, uh, John's baptism was a, a, a baptism that depicted the washing away of sins and the death to an old life. But Jesus' baptism would actually affect those things, would actually bring those realities to the person he baptized. He would baptize not in a created mode, the created mode of water. He would baptize in the august person of God the Holy Spirit. That would be the mode of Jesus' baptism. But as, as connection, how many of John the Baptist's followers did he baptize with water? Well, all of them. That's why he's called John the Baptist. That was a mark of those following his ministry. So how many of Christ's followers would he baptize with the Holy Spirit? All of them. That would be definitive of his mystery. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking, why are you making such a big deal out of that? But others of you are thinking, I know exactly why you're making a big deal out of that. Because there are whole swaths of Christian Christendom, uh, even evangelical Christendom, loosely called, who hold the baptism with the Spirit as a separate experience, something that Christians may or may not experience, something you have to seek. In fact, I, I have in my notes, uh, my, my exegetical notes, I have a picture of a book titled How to Get the Baptism with the Holy Spirit, which I look at with a moan because there is nothing in the Bible that tells you how to, how to get it as a Christian, how to seek it. There are no commands to go find the baptism in the Holy Spirit. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. 
Now, this baptism with the Holy Spirit is something uh, among the many things that the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, again, I, I say great many Christians, too many Christians, think of the cross as something Jesus did and hoped good would come of it. I mean, he died for just absolutely everybody, but whether anything would come of it is up to you. Uh, because what he did was he just he made an offer, or in this terrible phrase, he made men savable or something like that. Now, the biblical picture is very, very different. He didn't come to try to save sinners or to make sinners savable or to offer salvation to sinners. He came to save sinners. And by his death on the cross, he assured the salvation of every last one of God's elect. And God the Holy Spirit would apply that. And one of the things that he secured by his death on the cross is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33 says that. Acts 2.33, on the birthday of the church, the apostle Peter says, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on you that which you both see and hear. And what was it that they saw and heard? It was the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what that day was. That's what constituted the church. So the baptism with the Holy Spirit is something the Lord Jesus won by his death on the cross in obedience to the Father's will. So in this baptism then, in water baptism is a picture, but in the spirit baptism, believers are really and actually brought into union with Christ. They are really and actually brought into the body of Christ. And so by definition, all Christians are spirit baptized. To be a Christian is to be spirit baptized. So that Paul can say very boldly in Romans 8, 9, Romans 8, 9, he can say, however, you are not, and we just read this, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Very binary. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is living a subpar Christian life. Oh no, do you remember the words? That's not what he said. He said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there aren't various degrees of Christians' experience of the Holy Spirit in this way. You either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're in the Spirit or you're in the flesh. And if you're a Christian, you're in the Spirit. And if you're in the Spirit, you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you're in the body of Christ, you've been baptized there by the Lord Jesus, baptizing you in the mode, not of water, but of the Holy Spirit. So this is what makes a Christian a Christian. Therefore, our very union with Christ is affected by God the Holy Spirit. And again, from what we've studied, that should be no surprise that it's the Spirit's delight to bring us, not just to, to tell us truth about Christ, but to bring us into actual union with Christ. Secondly, he is the giver of gifts for it. He is the mode of baptism into it, and he is the giver of gifts for it, that is, for the body of Christ. And a couple of verses, uh, well, several verses, but I'll look at a couple that teach us that. Again, I'll read to you Romans 12, unless you want to turn there, but Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. We're going to look at the next one together. But Romans 12, 4 through 8, Paul says, For just as we have many members in one body, 
And all, meaning parts, body parts. We have many, not, not uh, associates, but, but parts of the body. We have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, we should exercise them. And then he goes in detail some of those gifts, prophecy, teaching, service, and so forth. So the picture is of a body with its many parts, fingers, hands, elbows, ears, and so forth. One body, but a body made up of many parts. And these many parts, he says, correspond to spiritual gifts. And what are spiritual gifts? They're capacities for serving. They're particular God-given capacities for serving God within that body. Like, like my finger has a job that's different than my ear, and my ear has a job that's different from my nose, and so forth and so on. So the parts of the spiritual body of Christ. One body, but many parts. Now, how does that happen? How do we have one body, but one body with many parts? That's answered more expressly in 1 Corinthians 12. So let's do look there together, please. 1 Corinthians 12. And you have the verses there, so let's just look. 1 Corinthians 12, and Paul is speaking about spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. And 1 Corinthians 12, 4, he says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. So there's unity and diversity. One spirit gives these many gifts. There are varieties of gifts, but one spirit. And then verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is profitable. Now there's a very important verse. Each one, that is every Christian, has a showing of the Spirit's gifting, but to what end? For what is profitable. Profitable to whom? To the body. Not to the person, but to the body. And so verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. And then verse 12, for even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So the Holy Spirit is the one who distributes all these various gifts to the people who are members of this one body. And what all those gifts have in common is, first of all, they're all given by the Holy Spirit. And second of all, they're all given for the profit of the body. Now, if we were to be studying the gifts, that would be actually very instructive because there are many people whose idea of tongues and so forth is that this is for my profit. It's a, it's a personal gift just for building myself up. There is no gift the Holy Spirit gave for personal profit. Every one of the gifts of the Spirit is for building the body up. Yet another one of those truths that challenges the sort of Christian who tries to live an isolated bubble existence in, in, in disobedience to the call of the Word of God to live in love and service of the Lord and of one another. The very gifts that we are given are given for uh, the service of the body and not for self-service and not for show or attention getting, but for serving the body. Then, having looked at the Spirit and the body of Christ, let us go to Roman numeral 2 then and study the Spirit and life in Christ. The Spirit and life in Christ. And 
This is, I just, I, I, I love that we're going to study this. This is going to be a very blessed study for us. These are wonderful scriptures. The spirit and life in Christ. Wonderful scriptures because they're wonderful truths. And the first thing I want to show you just very succinctly is that he, the Holy Spirit, begins and completes us in the gospel. And that's Galatians 3. He begins and completes us in the gospel. Galatians 3, 1 through 3. So go ahead and turn there. Actually, look at Galatians a couple of times today. But uh, this, is a, this is a very animated letter. Uh, it, it, it defies reading in a monotone. And here's one of those passages. I mean, you just can't read, Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was... No. <laughs> he, he's saying, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He can't believe that when people come in and say, it's lovely that you believed in Christ, but let me tell you all the other things you need to really be right with God. He can't believe that they all went, oh, yup, yup, okay, yo, yeah, yeah, well, we'd love to hear more about that. Please tell us more. Because he thinks that they should have said, but Jesus was crucified. How can you be talking to us about more than what Jesus did when he was crucified? To Paul, just knowing that fact should have proofed them against false false teaching. So we're studying how the Spirit begins and completes us in the gospel. And I struggle with how to express that, but it's, it's in the gospel. It's all in connection with the gospel. It's in the truth of the gospel and the application of the truth of the gospel that the Spirit both begins and completes us. So, first of all, the objective truth of the gospel is the basis of how the Spirit begins and completes us. That's the basis, verse 1. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now that is the central truth of the gospel. That's the the central focus of the gospel. Paul going to Corinth with all of their love of philosophy and whatnot. What's the one thing he decided that he would know among them and preach? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word of the cross he calls his gospel, which is the same gospel all the apostles preached. It's the word of the cross. The word of the cross. That is the basis. Jesus was crucified, and that is our Christian life. That's our gospel. This is not just beginning information, how you become a Christian. Now you can forget that and go on to the important things. Every day of my Christian life rests on what Jesus did on the cross. And five million years from now, the joy I'll be experiencing in the presence of God will be because of what? what Jesus did on the cross because he was crucified. And by his crucifixion, by his crucifixion, not by my anything, was I saved. So there's the basis of it. That's where we begin. And the spirit in the gospel is its application, number two. The spirit in the gospel is its application. The objective truth of the gospel is the basis, but the spirit in the gospel is its application. As Paul says, That's not in the Greek text, but I think it's there. He says, this is the only thing I want to learn from you. He's calming himself here, counting to whatever 10 would be in Greek. Deca, he's counting to the deca. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the answer to that question is, which one? By hearing with faith. What's he talking about? Same thing as in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is the Gospel. The Holy Spirit applies what Christ did on the cross in our hearing of the Gospel as He regenerates us and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of His mighty sovereign act. Uh, This is what Paul will say in in Titus 3.5. He saved us, he says in Titus 3.5. How did He save us? He saved us, Paul says, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So God saves us by regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and it is because of regeneration in the Holy Spirit that when I hear the gospel, I savingly believe in the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of Christ's death. The Holy Spirit brings me to saving faith. So Paul has been calm, and then again in verse 3, He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So that number three, the Spirit brings us, brings its consummation. He begins us with the application of the gospel, and He brings us to consummation. The Holy Spirit is how we become Christians. The Holy Spirit is how we be Christians. And the Holy Spirit is how we end our course as Christians. It's the Holy Spirit from start to finish because it's the grace of God by, by, from start to finish. And the whole project of the salvation of God's elect is a work of God from start to finish. That's what the Bible crystal clear says. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That no flesh may boast before him. It is a work of God. So notice these antonyms. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? Those are perfect antonyms. The beginning and the consummation, he says, are both by the Spirit. And if you've been reviewing and thinking about our studies, what does that make you think of? What other thing do we read about where the Holy Spirit was the beginning and the consummation of a process? Creation. Very, very good. Creation. Genesis chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit, that God created all things, and what do we read? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God carries out the creative work of God in a work that begins with what is good and ends with what is very good. Well, is it, is it a reach to, to make an analogy between that and the Christian? I don't think so. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? 2 Corinthians 5.17. One more time, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. And so it should not surprise us if the Holy Spirit is there causing the beginning of our Christian life and He brings us to the consummation of our Christian life. And so... Uh, no, as many false teachings, both cultic and Christianoid, say, it's not, we don't get our start by what Jesus did and then we got to do our best. No, no, it's all the grace of God. It's all the work of God. It's all by the enablement of God. Every la- I mean, that is why we read, if they got crowns, they throw them at God's feet. If we get rewards, they're all thanks to God. It's all because Dad loaned us the money that we could buy him a 
cigar or whatever, you know, is with his money. And anything we do for the Lord, we do because of his enabling. Can I get in? Thank you. Now let's look at letter B. He leads and empowers us for holiness. He leads and empowers us for holiness. For holiness, I say, for holiness. Because after all, we remind ourselves, the Scripture calls him not the silly spirit, not the jolly spirit, not the slap-happy spirit, not the absurd spirit, not the goofy spirit. The, Holy spirit. the Scripture calls him the Holy Spirit. And he leads us to produce in our lives holiness. First turn with me to Romans chapter 8 from where we read before. Romans chapter 8. Now, it's, it's going to be difficult to go through these quickly, but I just have to. I, I really would love sometime to come back and, and go through it more slowly. But Romans 8, verses 11 through 14 first, just to take that little snippet from this glorious chapter, like taking a photo of the Swiss Alps and saying, there, there's the Alps. Uh, but this is just a little part of this glorious section. Romans 8 through 11, first I'm going to point out that he gives us life. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Father. A lot of people mistakenly say this teaches the spirit raised Jesus from the dead. No, it's the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the Father. If that spirit dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So I have a life different than the life of the world. I have a life different than Adamic life, than natural life that I just inherited from my fallen great, 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 great grandfather. I have a life that's given me by God. And he gives, and so do you if you're a Christian, if you've repented and trusted in Christ. You have a life given you by God, and God gives you that life by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you that life as surely as, as God gave life to Jesus and resurrected him from the dead. He gives us life. And then letter B, this life that he gives us through the Holy Spirit creates, enables, and obliges a holy lifestyle. A holy lifestyle. Now verses 12 and 13 are just so rich. But Romans 8, 12 but if Christ is in you, and if you're a Christian, he is, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit, I'm sorry, I went back, I'm very sorry. Um, verse 12, I'm sorry. So, although that was a good verse, but um, here's the verse I'm supposed to be reading. So then, brothers, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. So his logic there is that this life we have from God obligates us. But it doesn't obligate us to give free reign to the ungodly lusts of the flesh. That's not the obligation that that life creates within us. Instead, that life creates within us an obligation to live according to the Spirit. If we live according to the flesh, we're about to die. We're sure to die. But, if, but now look at how he unfolds it. What is this? In many false 
Christianoid theologies, it's just a matter of knowing some truths and, and just, you know, being smarter than other people and you're good. But no, not in Scripture. If by the Spirit you are, you are actively, you are day by day putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Now, again, this is not a subcategory of Christians. This is what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is by the Spirit to be putting to death the practices of the body. But what a, a, a thick, thick thing. You cannot do it, but you must do it. You cannot do it because you don't have the native ability, but you must do it because God commands it, and you can do it because the Spirit enables it. If by the Spirit you put to death the practices of the body, you will live. So I can't, but I must, and I only can because He enables. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, So what are we reading about here? Are we reading about deciding who to marry or what college to go to or what brand of beans to buy or whether to get a car or not or or whether to follow this impulse to go talk to that guy or quit this job or leave this church or go to that church or, or, or whatever? Is that what we're talking about? No, we're talking about growth and holiness. And what is growth and holiness? Well, it's putting death, putting sin to death, and it is coming alive to holiness. And and what is holiness? It's conformity to the Word of God. Where do I learn how God wants me to live except in His Word? And holiness is growing in conformity to His Word. So now that is going to help us understand the next widely and wildly misapplied verse. Verse 14, this lifestyle marks us as sons of God. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And that's where a great many of the variations of charismatic teaching in and outside of the movement, they lift this verse out as if it were just a fortune cookie, floating all by itself with no context and no other meaning. They just lift this verse out and they say, as many as are led by the Spirit. And you know what that means? That means that you don't think rationally. It means you don't, you don't do Bible stuff. It's just God will whisper directly into your spirit. And it may be that he'll say, quit your job, and I'll open up something new for you. Or he may say, lay hands, lay hands on that man sitting in the corner, and I'm going to heal him. Or he may say this, or he may say that. This verse has nothing to do with that. Whatever. Put it back in it, you know, back, back in its context. Step away from the verse and look at the whole picture. And what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? It means to put to death the practices of the body and to walk according to God's Word. That's what it is to be led by the Spirit. And that's what marks a son of God. Not that he's irrational and spontaneous and silly and goofy, but that he walks in according to the Word. What does Jesus say? If you do silly, goofy things, you are my disciples. If you live irresponsibly and spontaneously, you're my disciples. No. If you, what does he say? You can't tell me. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples. And to walk in the Spirit is to continue in his word. To be led by the Spirit is to be led to continue in his word. And his word is brought to us by whom? Well, by God the Holy Spirit and the apostles. 
So that's what it is to be led by the Spirit. And that marks me as a son of God. I'm marked as a son of God, not because I live silly and ridiculous, but because I live in a way that's obedient to my Father. I'm a son of God because I obey my Father. I revere my Father. I walk after my Father. So, some vital truths then. First thing I just want to point out, to even a bit of a larger context, is the root of everything is in verse 1, which we didn't look at, but I'm looking at it now. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is all about being in Christ Jesus. It's not about seeking the Spirit per, per se by Himself. It's about life in Christ Jesus and in Christ Jesus my life in Him is the life of the Spirit. The Spirit brings me to Him, the Spirit unites me with Him, and the Spirit empowers me for living in unity with Him. It's all about life in Christ Jesus by the Spirit's doing. And secondly, the Spirit shows in our lives how, well, as Paul talks about it, the Spirit shows in our lives not by particular feelings, not by particular experiences, and not by, by mooing or barking or shaking uncontrollably or, or, or falling down. And, and if, if you think you're, you're, you're giggling at that, uh, these are things people do who are especially touched by the Holy Spirit with no authority in Scripture. And not at all, obviously, what this is talking about. This is talking about a life of obedience to God's Word, putting to death the deeds of the body, coming alive to God's way. It's holy living. That is how the Spirit shows in our life. Holy living, thinking according to the things of God, living and choosing according to the things of God, putting to death the practices of the old fallen body. So now we'll look at that teased out even a little bit more in Galatians chapter 5. And here too we'll run into verses that are widely misapplied and hopefully we'll, we'll get some light on these things together. Galatians chapter 5. Now, I'll show you, this is actually an inclusio, starting in verse 16. Paul says here in Galatians 5, 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So the apostle lays out two ways here, and they are antithetical. You can do the one or you can do the other. There is the way of the Spirit or the way of the flesh. And Paul says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So what is the Spirit? Obviously, that's the Holy Spirit who indwells us in Christ. If one, if one does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So that's the Holy Spirit. What's the flesh? Well, the flesh is remaining corruption for what I was in Adam. I'm born dead in trespasses and sins. I'm born dead and guilty under Adam's sin. And when the Lord saves me, I'm born again. I have a new nature and a new heart. But still, I've got the remaining corruptions as long as I'm in this body. I still fight the fight of the remaining corruptions. He'll talk about that, so I won't, I won't pre-teach that. But that's what the flesh is, the remaining corruption of our life in Adam. And I just want you to notice here that neither one of these walks is primarily about feeling a, per, a, a certain way. It's about choices. It's, it's about beliefs, it's about convictions, it's about actions, behavior. So the opposite of walking in the Spirit is not missing an opportunity to witness to somebody because I didn't follow that hunch. 
or missing a wonderful new life because I didn't follow that, that feeling to quit my job and just go out looking or not even looking. It's not about stuff like that. The opposite of walking in the Spirit is walking in the flesh. In other words, sinning. That, that's the opposite. Not, not decisions or experiences, but whether I do or don't violate or obey God's Word. That's what we're, ta- that's what we're talking about. That's the life of the Spirit in line with God's Word or the light of the flesh in rebellion against God's Word. Those are the opposites. So, walking in the Spirit is walking according to God's Word. And that brings us to the battle in verse 17, the battle. And here, my friend, is where we live. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you want. So the Holy Spirit and my remaining corruptions are at loggerheads with each other. They are opposed to each other. They're set against each other. Both strongly desire, but they strongly desire in opposite directions. The flesh strongly desires to rebel against God and assert autonomy. My own authority. I will be as God. That's what the flesh wants. It wants to be God and wants to be left alone to do that. Uninterfered with. But the Spirit strongly desires that I honor the Father by obeying the Word of God and revering it and walking according to it. And I live, well, my life is a battlefield between those two strong desires. In me, in my heart, wages that war. As Peter speaks of fleshly lusts, waging war against the soul. That's a very picturesque way to put it. But in me is a battlefield. The Holy Spirit wanting me to go one way, my flesh wanting to go another. Uh, By the way, can anyone identify with that? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yes, it sounds familiar to me, 24-7, 365, since February 11, 1973. That is what it has been, a constant battle between those two opposing directions. And one is the Holy Spirit, and one is what I was outside of Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it very well. I just think this is so well put. In an article on sanctification, it says this, this sanctification of which they've been speaking, this sanctification is throughout, it's in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth, listen, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. Isn't that well put? Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There can be no peace between these two opposing desires. There will only be peace when the one is done away with for all time. And that glorious day is in our future. And Paul says, after talking about this in Romans 7, he says, Oh, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that that deliverance is assured, but it is future. And in the meanwhile, we live in a continual and irreconcilable war. So now we look at the leading in verses 18 through 23. The leading. And now he talks again about being led by the Spirit. 
in Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Well, now, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Now, we, we, hopefully we see it doesn't mean feelings, promptings, hunches, spontaneous. You know, like somebody said to me, well, don't you, haven't you ever just felt like the Lord's leading you some way and you can't explain it? I said, nope. Nope. That's not biblical. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's biblical. And when the Holy Spirit leads me, it's according to the Word of God. It's not according to some bizarre, you know, irresponsible, childlike behavior, childish behavior. So, uh, led by the Spirit, what it is about, it's about sanctification, it's about holiness, it's about godly living. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Not to live in the flesh, but to live in the Spirit. Now, somebody might say, okay, well now, how can I tell which is which? How can I tell whether it's the flesh that's leading me or the Spirit that's leading me? Paul says, simple. Doesn't he? Look at the next, the categories. First, we have works of the flesh, and there's 15 plus change. I say 15 and change. He names 15, and then he says, and such like these. So it's not an exhaustive list. But what does he say in the beginning? Now the deeds of the flesh are what? Evident. They're obvious. It's not hard to tell when it's the flesh leading you. Now, you've known Christians who've said, oh, you know, I want to do this, but I can't tell if it's the flesh or the spirit. Paul would say, sorry, can't, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's obvious. But what they mean is, oh, I don't, I don't know what God's individual will for me is and, and which one will actually work the way I want it to. Well, that, that's not what it's about. It's not about that. It's about living faithfully in submission to God. So I digress. Back to this. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what are all these things? They're all ungodliness. They're all sins. They're all unchristlikeness. They're all violations of God's word. It's not about making a wrong choice or missing a hint or an urging or a, a, a leading or a, uh, of my spirit. It's not about that. It's about sin. I mean, you think this isn't germane? It never has an application? Oh, it certainly does. I remember as a young Christian, a man I knew, a Christian man, as I believed, I knew, who cheated on his wife and said he felt like it was of the Lord. And I said, I'm a very young Christian, but I said, there is no way in heaven or hell, this is from the Lord, because he says, and then I quoted scripture, but you, you don't think that this is, is germane. Oh, it's very germane. It's very germane. And then the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it interesting? The, work, the flesh produces works, but the, the Spirit produces fruit. It grows out of the life of the Spirit. These are living things. What the flesh does, they're activities, but they're activities of death. You, can you be dead and active? Normally, no. <laughs> but, but in this way, yes. Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in, trespasses and, tre, dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. Yes, you can be active and dead, 
but fruit comes from life, the life of the Spirit. And here, here there are nine. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Note that these are not bizarre, extreme, irrational things. They're not individualistic. This has been called the shortest biography of Christ ever written. I mean, this is, this is a profile of Christ's character. And that's what the Holy Spirit produces in us. And notice that at least six out of nine of those are relational. They're things you can't do from a distance. Uh, maybe you'd rather I just talk about prophecy or politics or theoretical things that, that puff up our intellect and make us feel smarter than others. But I'd have to go around the Bible to do that because mostly what the Bible talks about is loving God or loving people for the most part. Not every last verse, but yeah, mostly it's about what are the epistles about? Mostly they're about loving God or loving people. And you can't do that from a distance. You need to be in relationship with people to do that. You need to know their names. You need to talk to them. You need to be close enough to hear their voice. There's a relationship, and this is what the Holy Spirit produces. And if that's not happening, then the Holy Spirit is not moving in our lives, and, and we should consider very seriously our, our standing before God. If this is not at all interesting to us and we're not even trying, well, then, then there's, a, there's a sign of great ill health, and a, at the very least... So this is what it means to be led by the Spirit. If we're manifesting these 15 vices, we're not being led by the Spirit. If we're growing in these nine graces, we are being led by the Spirit. Not about drama and melodrama. It's about Christ-centered, holy living. Christ-like, holy living. And then we end with a promise and a command in verses 24 and 25. And this is the inclusio. He started as he finished. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Verse 16, he said, walk by the Spirit. Here he says, walk in step or keep in line with the Spirit. So that means to walk as we know he would lead. And how do we know the Holy Spirit would lead us? How do you know, having studied all we've studied, how do you know the Spirit would lead you? He'd lead you toward Christ, according to the Word of God, in holy living. Right? So walk that way. Keep in line with the Spirit. Look to Christ. Walk after Christ. Put to death the deeds of the body by His enabling. That's what Paul says. So it's, isn't that interesting? Not directly a seeking of the Spirit per se, but a living in the Spirit in Christ. And as we live this life in Christ, 2 Corinthians 3.18 shows us He transforms us. Turn there with me, please. 2 Corinthians 3.18 shows that He transforms us. Now, it, this, is, this whole section, chapters 3, 4, and 5, they're just wonderful. It's just like picking out a couple of, couple of gems from a diamond mine, but, but uh, that's what we'll attempt to do. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now in the context, there's a picture here, and that's Exodus 34. That's the context, Exodus 34, where Moses communes with Yahweh and he comes down to the people and what do the people see? 
His face. What's, what's with his face? What, what, what's, what's with his face? It's glowing. It's reflecting the glory that he'd just been communing with. He'd been seeing the glory of the Lord in the, in the pillar of cloud at the tabernacle. And he comes out and that same glow is, is reflected. It's irradiating from his face. And that frightened the Jews. So he put a veil over it so they wouldn't be scared. So he wouldn't be scaring them with his, with his glowy face. So he put a veil over it and so they didn't see the glory. But then when he'd go back and he'd commune with the Lord, then he'd take the veil off and he'd commune with, God, with the glory of God. Well, Paul tells us that under the new covenant, it's the, a matter of the Holy Spirit, not law. We're not under the letter that kills by, by giving commands that we don't have the power to obey. We're under the Spirit who, as we have seen, gives life, gives life. And so the Spirit's goal, number two, his work and his goal is not merely to inform but to transform. And a great many people, all they want is to be informed, but that is not what's going to save and sanctify us. The work of the Spirit is to transform us. And, and this is, every time you've heard me say this, I wonder if you've noticed that, what do I say? I say, I say that when we say, when we see the name Lord in the New Testament, what do I say? We almost always should understand it to mean Christ. When Paul says word, uh, the word Lord, he almost always means Christ. Well, almost always means not always. And this is one of those places where by Lord, he doesn't mean Christ. By Lord, he means the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament text, we're reading that Moses met with Yahweh. Who's Yahweh? Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. So who is God? God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is Yahweh. So that means the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. That's the name of God. And so when the Greek, Old Test when the Greek translators of the Old Testament rendered these passages, instead of writing Yahweh, they wrote Lord. They wrote Kyrios, Lord. So what Paul is saying here then is that when we're reading about the Lord in Exodus 34, we're reading about the Holy Spirit. The glory of God is the Holy Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit, Paul is saying. And now under the new covenant, the covenant of the Spirit, as we look into this mirror and see the glory of the Lord, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, transforms us into that same image that we're beholding. So we are... the. The power for transformation comes from the Holy Spirit as we behold the glory of the Lord as in the mirror. Now, if, as I hope you're thinking about this practically in, in, in application, you're probably thinking, well, then what is, that, what is that mirror? How do I look at that mirror? What's that talking about? Paul tells us, look in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll look at verses 5 and 6. Here's the answer. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for the sake of Jesus. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. In the face of Christ. So where do I behold the glory of God? in the face of Christ. And how do I access that? In the gospel, 
in the Word of God, the Spirit-breathed Word of God, that is where I see the glory of the Lord. I see it in Scripture. I see it in the Gospel. And by beholding Christ, as I behold Christ, the Holy Spirit transforms me into the image of Christ, the likeness of the character of Christ. In His radiantly glorious face, I see a glory and am transformed. And so that's what my Christian life is. It is a transformation from one degree of glory to the other throughout my life, throughout your life, as we behold Christ. It's what the Spirit does in our hearts. That's how we grow, not by self-effort, but by the Holy Spirit's work as we gaze on Christ. But what's the end game? Number three, I'll tell you what the end game, I'll show you what the end game is. That's in chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 1 through 4. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. What's that speaking of? Our resurrection body. That's the, that's the building made by God, eternal in the heavens, and that will be swallowed up in life. Our, our mortal body with the corruptions of the flesh will be transformed and swallowed up in life in a resurrection body. And then look at the next verse. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge, a down payment, a guarantee. So this work now of the Holy Spirit transforming me as it seems millimeter by millimeter at the rate of a millimeter at a year, but still transforming me, that work of the Holy Spirit promises to me that it will be consummated. The, the growth that you know as a Christian, however slow and painful it may be, that is a down payment. That is a, an earnest. That is an indicator that God is saying, I will finish this process. And one day you will be free from all of the oh, temptations and follies and idiocies of the flesh. And you'll be able to worship freely and in a resurrection body. So the Spirit consummates that process even as He conducts the process. It has an end game. Uh, how terrible would it be to think that that was our eternity? This painful growth and incessant battle with the flesh. No. One day the battle will be over. And one day faith will be sight. And one day uh, we will see Him face to face in a glorified resurrection body. So, in conclusion, and this will be my conclusion, Roman numeral 3, the Spirit and us, just in brief summary of all we've studied, let's first talk about how we know of Him. Letter A, how we know of Him. Well, let's be very clear. The way we know of Him is not by feelings, it's not by hunches, it's not by stories and experiences, it's not by religious tradition. And countless thousands of American, not just American Christians, that's how they know about the Holy Spirit. They tune in 
whatever charismatic channel or, or, or um, uh, internet website or whatever, or go to the, a crusade, and they hear stories, and they hear testimonies, and this is how they learn of what the Holy Spirit is doing, all of it without a syllable of justification from Scripture. That's not how to learn about the Holy Spirit, not from the, the musings of, crazy, of, of crazed people or silly people or any people <laughs> for that matter, but by Scripture, but by Scripture alone. Only in Scripture do we authoritatively learn about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because the Spirit inspired Scripture. So the place, let me uh, reemphasize that, the place I'm going to go to learn about who the Spirit is and what He's doing is His book about who He is and what He's doing. And that is Scripture. That's how we know of Him. Now, how do we know Him then? Letter B. How do we know Him? Well, we read His book, and from His book, from the very way it's written, we learn who He is and what He loves. You saw that with me last week? We learned what the Spirit loves by what he wrote about. And what did he write about? Christ. The book pivots on Christ, centers on Christ. Well, now that teaches me of him. And I know him by knowing what he wrote. I see what he loves. And what he loves is Christ. And so if I want to know him, then I will share his love. I will delight in what he delights in. And as he delights in Christ... I will learn and seek and pray to delight in Christ. What, what prayer would please the Holy Spirit more than a prayer to God, O oh Father, help me to treasure Christ as I should. Help me to exalt Christ as I should. Help me to yearn to know Christ as I should. Help me to learn to glorify Christ as I should and value Christ as I should. Well, these are the very things that I know the Holy Spirit wants to teach me because that's what he reveals in his word. So there it is. As we pursue Christ, 2 Corinthians 3 taught us this. As we pursue Christ, gazing on him, the Holy Spirit transforms us into his image. Isn't that a glorious truth? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths we've had. I'll be, albeit in a hurry, but Father, we pray that you will use these to direct us down the road of walking with you, of keeping in line with the Spirit in a way that brings pleasure to you and glory to Christ, in a way that, is, that leads us in the way of putting to death the deeds of the body and walking after the blessed Holy Spirit. Thank you for the Lord Jesus securing him for us. Thank you for your gracious gift of him to us and how your very love is poured out in our hearts by him. And I pray, Father, for anyone who's walked in an absolute stranger to these things and perhaps now he sees as he hasn't before that he or she is a stranger to these things. Father, I pray for the blessed work of the Holy Spirit to give life to that one, to open that one's eyes to the glories of Christ and to enable that one, put, put wings on that one's feet so that he or she will fly to Christ and come to him for salvation and life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.